Hey, welcome everybody to episode number five of the Signal Integrity Journal Fundamentals Podcast. I'm Eric Bogatin, Signal Integrity Journal Technical Editor, and today I'm joined by uh, Herb Snodgren and Mark Hughes. Uh, Mark is the Research Director at Royal Circuit Solutions, and Herb is a consultant to the PCB industry and an expert in PCB fab technology. And I'm really pleased to have both of you with me because I have a lot of questions about what's going on in uh, PCB technology and manufacturing. And so maybe we'll start out just real briefly. If uh, Mark, we'll start with you. If you can give us a, a quick intro of just uh, what exactly do you do as the research director at World Circuits? Surprisingly little research. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we do have a couple projects that I've, I've got trying to move forward, but I actually got got pulled very quickly into the marketing side of things. And I mostly now I would say my job is to create interesting content, technical content for electronics engineers. Okay. So, so on, on that note, while we're talking about it, because many of our readers have exactly the same interest. I wanted to learn about that stuff. If we wanted to find more information about some of that really cool content you're creating, where's a good place to go? Well, if you go to royalcircuits.com forward slash blog or... Okay. Visit teachmepcb.com. Uh, we can get you some use. We can at least point you in the right direction at either one of those locations. Okay. So later, if we have time, I want to hear about your teachmepcb.com activities. I know you've been teaching some online PCB design classes. So maybe if we have time, we'll talk about that or grab you for another interview to, to do that. And, Certainly. And uh, Herb, uh, what exactly do you do as a consultant to the PCB industry? I've been consulting with the PCB industry for uh, 15, 20 years, pretty close to that, um, on a wide variety of um, issues, process development, uh, technology advancement, um, you know, system improvements, things like that, troubleshooting. Okay, okay so it's on the manufacturing side and the, yeah, the uh, process the technology. Perfect, because yeah. I have uh, some questions about that. So I've got these two uh, experts in the PCB manufacturing side of things. Uh, I got a chance to um, ask some of the questions that I've been curious about. But first, I'd like to get your perspective. You know, you're in the in the trenches in uh, in fabricating printer circuit boards. What do you see as kind of the the transitions, the trends that we're seeing today? What are the the uh, the, the challenges in uh, PCB designs that you're getting these days? Um, Mark, you want to start out? Sure. I would say right now, and this is probably an overly obvious answer, but the part shortage is absolutely destroying things, uh, destroying production lines. Um, companies, I, I'm sure, are, are suffering. You take something that you've, you've made for the last 20 years and all of a sudden, well, maybe not 20 years, but five years, and all of a sudden you can't get parts anymore and you can't get replacement parts. Lead times, you know, 52 weeks out. It, it's ridiculous. I will say, though, you know, one of the questions that I have that is blowing me away on the Royal Circuit side of things during this entire part shortage, our board counts, um, the number of boards we're producing is going up still. But on the assembly side of things, it's going down. I trying to, if anybody out there knows, I want to know where that disconnect is. How are uh, people making more boards and getting less of them stuffed? I want to know. Uh, <laughs> yes, I thought there was going to be a conservation of circuit boards of those coming out of fab and going to assembly should be the same. So yeah, interesting uh, conundrum there. Um, when you say the board uh, uh, count is going up, uh, is it the number of designs or the number of units per design that, that's going up? Uh, 
speaking strictly from a uh, a monetary level, from net income, um, we're, we're making more money on that side of things. We're getting more orders. Um, but as far as if there are different variations in designs, I actually don't have any data on that for you. Okay. And so while we're talking about uh, World Circuit, so you guys do both the board fab and you do the assembly? Uh, it's a complicated relationship, but yes, um, we've got, we have separate LLCs that do both. We can do uh, rigid, rigid flex, flex. Uh, we can also do assembly, but they're separate entities, uh, legally speaking. Okay. So while we're on that, and we're going to get to Herb in a second, but while we're on that issue, because you, do, you guys do both the fab and the assembly, do you find, are there things that you do in the fab uh, or in recommending to your fab customers things that will improve the assembly operations uh, because you have you kind of feed in, in, in both camps. How long do you have, Eric? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the big one that we that I would always say um, the big pet peeve on the assembly side are via in pads that are unfilled. Um, so the issue is that you have solder wicks into the into the via cavities, and that means you don't have enough solder paste or uh, liquid solder left on the pad, so you get in, you know a, a very poor mechanical connection. Um, that's the big thing. But at the same time, nobody wants to go pay to get a filled uh, filled via. It's too expensive. So what do you do? Well, you need to create a solder dam of some sort, um, and the minimum web. Herb is probably better equipped to answer, but for traditional, wouldn't you say it's about three mil web, Herb? Yeah, some people are going down to two, but it, you know, it gets tricky when you get down to yeah. uh, Um, And then if you're doing a thermal pad, uh, there is a new IPC standard. Well, it's not all that new. It's been out 10 years. Uh, I believe that's 6091 uh, is the one that has patterns that covered that, but I might have to confirm that for you a little bit later. So big issue don't put vias in pads. Don't put vias near pads. Put vias far enough away that you can get a, let's call it a three mil web so that the solder can't leave the pad and wick into the hole. Or if you're doing a thermal pad package, um, I want to say it's 6091, gives some advice on how to do that. And there's a lot more okay. information at pcblibraries.com. Okay, good tip. Um, and, and again, because you're you're bringing up questions that I've had for a while. So here's my chance to get them answered. So, um, it, you know, I teach a printer design class and I teach a, a senior design class. And in the senior design class, my students do a lot of different boards um, and they use a lot of QFN parts. And uh, in the QFN, the, the center of the body of the QFN is typically a large uh, plane, which more than not is connected to ground and it's for thermal sinking and for, for ground. But it's also got the very small pads along the periphery of the part. When you build a footprint for that and assemble that onto the board, I see a lot of the footprints being large open um, uh, uh, planes on the top surface with the small pads and uh, thermal vias uh, in, the, in that large plane to suck the heat down to the, the rest of the board and connection to the ground. When you assemble the QFN to that board, do you put solder paste everywhere on that large plane? Do you put it in dot patterns? How do you know how much solder paste to put down for the connection of the large pad and not float the package off the board so that the small pads on the periphery don't make contact? 
that's a great question. So there's a, a couple different ways. There's two ways that you can paste a board these days. One is the traditional stencil, right? Uh, you get a stencil printer and you might do something like um, put windows, which I'm sure you've seen, you know, these, these lines of no solder paste. Mostly those are there to keep the squeegee from falling into the hole and ah. giving, you, giving you a bad uh, concavity there. What you do these days is use a solder paste printer. Solder paste printers are really just absolutely fantastic. Um, they kind of, they print much like an inkjet printer. And you can do everything from control, mostly with the solder paste printers, we can control absolutely everything from, you know, the, the solder paste coverage, how thick it's gonna be. We can also control um, how far down we're gonna push that part when we place it. So, you know, we can keep it from, from pushing out. Now, the issue that you have with those vias, again, is that they're going to allow the solder to whip right out of that part. Um, if you have more than 50% um, voiding in there, right? Air is an incredible insulator. And if you have those holes, they're gonna allow gases to get up between the part and the land pattern. And that's gonna act like a big fat insulator. If you have more than 50% voiding, we've gotta rework the part or reject it. I mean, if it's a student project, is it gonna matter? Probably not. But, you know, once we put it in the x-ray machine, you know, that's really where we tell. Now, how many vias do you need? Well, you don't need probably as many as you think. TI has an application now, um, I forget the name of it, it's some number. But, um, you know, they found that, you know, there's kind of this um, uh, exponential decrease, or I guess logarithmic decrease in efficiency. As you start adding, you, you, you're not really getting as much bang for your buck anymore. Um, and I want to say they found, you know, for a typical, you know, QFN, you know, nine's more than enough. Now, again, if you lose more than 50% voiding, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're going to have to rework the part. So what you do then is create these patterns using solder mask. And the solder mask is going to dam and create voids around there and channels for these gases to escape out. So now you don't have to pay to fill your vias anymore. Um, instead, you're going to just say, okay, I've got solder paste there. Nothing's going to stick, but maybe, maybe I know I'm going to lose 30%. Uh, I'm going to have 30% voiding that way, better than 50. And it's a definite 30%. It's going to be 30% voiding each and every single time. So now your reliability has gone up. So just something to take a, take a look at. Um, and when you ask her the next question, I'm going to Google and make sure that it is 7091. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> so, so let me see if I understand that then. You're saying that, you know, a better way of doing the, um, the, the solder paste patterning under the QFN in that large area is, is make some grids or, or, or checkerboard regions with the solder mask so that you have some, um, you're not putting solder mask, or you're not putting solder everywhere, and that um, you've got uh, the solder mask that is going to help keep the part from uh, uh, keep it positioned a uh, uh, controlled amount off the surface of the of the board. Yeah, well, the solder mask isn't keeping a controlled distance off the board. The solder mask is keeping the solder from going into the via. Okay, so you're effectively using solder mask to tent the via then. Um, no. Okay. Yes and no. Okay. Um, you're using it to surround the via, but you're not actually tinting it. Uh, okay. So it's open, but it's as a dam to prevent the solder from getting to that via. Yes. Kind of like what you were saying before of uh, you want to have a via in pad far enough away from the 
pad that's being assembled so you can put a solder mask to dam the, the solder from getting to the via. And so the same thing, you make isolated islands in the solder mask uh, uh, around the vias uh, to prevent the solder from getting to the, the vias. Yep, and that's, the how, you, vias. And that's okay. how you get around the issue of, oh. you know, nobody, nobody wants to pay to fill their vias, uh -huh. um, especially uh -huh. during a prototype phase. Nobody wants to pay for it. So how do you do it? Well, the nice thing about these patterns is they don't cost anything. You're already putting solder masks down on your boards. Um, vias, if they're through-hole vias, I mean, you're already drilling those. I mean, it's yeah. okay. best of both worlds. You know, uh, Doug Brooks did an article in, I think it was an SI journal uh, within the last couple of months, where he showed that if you have planes in the board, especially if you have a ground plane near the surface of the board, and you've got those thermal vias going down to the ground plane, he, he saw that the impact of the amount of, of uh, heat power flowing through the thermal vias is actually really small compared to just the heat flowing through that thin dielectric down to the ground plane and sucking the heat out. And so other than using the, the thermal vias as the ground connection for that center pad to the plane, he said they don't really play much of a role for, for thermal management. It's you know, kind of like you were saying earlier that, hey, you, know, you don't need very many of those vias. You use them for good connection to the ground plane, not so much for the thermal relief or the, the, the thermal energy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, Dr. Brooks has a whole book on PCB trace tents, and uh, I forget the title of it, that he recently put out through our tech house yeah. um, that covers that. But if you don't want to go read that, he also has at his website, ultracad.com, um, he has a lot of his articles there. Uh, you can just go read them. It, it's got a lot of the same content as the book, maybe not uh, all of the content of the book, but it'll at least get you started. Uh -huh. You know what? You should do a blog post on summarizing some of the tips that, that Doug has created for um, thermal management and max current and, and the kind of tests he does. And then you can link in your blog to his site so that uh, if any of our readers just go to your site to read your blogs, they'll get that contact information as well. I think that helps spread the word. That's a great idea. Actually, I think I did that a couple of years back, but it's always good to, you know, circle back around to stuff. Okay. Very, very true. Great. Good input. Okay. I want to get over to Herb as well. So again, kind of leading the question of what do you see as the, the big challenges or trends in uh, circuit board fab right now that in, in, in your context? Well, I think there's two main ones. One is miniaturization and ultra HDI technology. Um, you know, the adoption of semi-additive process or modified semi-additive processing. So that's a fairly big one on the product and, and processing standpoint. And then also, um, you know, smart factory and industry 4.0. So I think those are kind of the two big trends um, in the industry right now. Okay, I got to hear. So it's industry 4.0. 4, 4 yeah. Okay, can, can, just really briefly, can you tell me what one... One, two, and three were, and then we'll talk about four. Know. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so then, what is industry four What's what do you mean by smart factory? I th I think it's using all the information available from the processes um, to allow more automation, more decision making, more autonomy uh, in the process. And just to smarten up the factory, you know, smarten up the process with lots okay. of things. So, so it's really driven toward trying to uh, control the processes better and tweak them to make them a little more efficient. 
Yeah, and almost real-time tweaking where you take information from the previous already been accumulated, you know, by the equipment or measurement or sensors and using that to drive the settings in the next process and make, oh. fine, you know, fine adjustments. So operators don't have to do it. And so that really applies across the spectrum of all the product families uh, just to improve efficiencies, keep the process controlled. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and it helps in troubleshooting because you just have this massive information that you can huh. use to improve and, and correct. But it's it's also self-correction. <laughs> so are you finding that there's sufficient ROI in implementing that so that uh, it's an incentive to move in that direction or is it just a nice to have? I don't have a lot of you know experience with it myself. Um, there are companies that are doing that. I know, um, you know, at Wheelan and GreenSource, you know, they implemented that technology there. And I think, you know, they make a pretty good argument for it, um, you know, with their system and the ROI. They right. It isn't, is Wheelan the company that does the zero or the green energy or the, the green fa fabrication? So there's zero waste coming out of it? Yeah. 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 And Alex uh, Stepinski started that. Um, and I, I think he's written a lot of papers and a lot on you know, just that automation and using information and simplifying the process. Wow. So you think that's one of the, I don't know, waves of the future of this approach of zero waste in the, in the PCB fab? Oh, I think it's going to be, you know, we're all trying to do that. It reduces cost. Ultimately. Well, in the States for sure. So, yeah. so it is also a cost reduction as well as good for the environment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so. What a winning combination then. Well, and, you know, the, and that kind of gets into this uh, semi-additive, additive, modified semi-additive. You know, there, there's less waste in that process. So, so, so let's talk about the semi-additive process. So the traditional approach of um, getting copper foil and laminated on and then subtractive etching, that's right. what volume production has been for a while. Yep. What, what is the semi-additive approach? So modified semi-additive or semi-additive is using either very thin copper, like, you know, one to three micron foil instead of, you know, typical half ounce or one ounce foil. So very thin foil, or in the case of semi-additive processing, using electroless copper or even vacuum deposited copper as a seed layer. And then, you know, plating, imaging and plating your circuitry, very thin background copper. So there's a you know, a huge savings and you're a not putting a lot of copper on and then taking it back off mm -hmm. uh, the etching process. And okay. So in the semi-additive approach, it's some kind of a, an initial thin layer of copper and there's a pattern plated up from that. Yep. Yeah. So then you pattern plate the conductors and the holes like you do in a, a conventional printed circuit board process. Um, but then when you go to etch, um, you don't even need an etchery plate. We use tin or tin lead or gold yeah. as an etch resist. And with this process, you don't need an etch resist. You can just copper plate, strip the resist, go into a, a flash etch or a differential etch. Um, you're removing, you know, a few microns, uh, change the shape or go attack the, the conductors themselves. So it leaves the conductors kind of formed as they were with the resist. Mm -hmm. And so you get control of the sidewalls then by the um, photoresist that, that yeah. you're using um, yeah. as it plates up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then if you use a, um, uh, some kind of a flash layer of copper, how do you get that good adhesion between the, the initial copper layer and the, and the laminate material? Yeah, so in the 
modified semi-additive process where you're using ultra thin copper, you know, the copper um, side that's going against the prepreg is treated. So it's got a treatment on it, it's roughened. Um, so that gives it, you know, some adhesion, mechanical adhesion. In the semi-additive process where you're putting electrolysis on bare laminate, um, there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, in the U.S., there's a couple companies. Averitech is one, um, and uh, Additive Circuit Technologies is another, and they've got some proprietary chemistry that is an activator and pro adhesion promoter for the electrolyzed copper. So it gets it to stick to, you know, most laminates. Um, okay. Yeah, I've written about the uh, Veritech process. That sounded yeah. very innovative that it puts down this, uh, some colloidal or really small particle on the surface yeah. that um, lets you uh, electrolyze deposit really, really thin copper and then right. um, electroplate from that. Um, yeah. do, you, do you see that process uh, implemented in production right now? It, I think they've got eight or 10 uh, licensees that are working to develop it. Um, uh -huh. So it's, you know, it's out there. I don't know how well you know, yeah. it's been commercialized or not. But uh, Yeah. One of the things they're, they're pushing is the idea of if it's really thin, you're, the line width you can create then is limited only by the photolithography for your photoresist right. um, when you put it down there. So you can get really fine lines out of it and yeah. high aspect ratio. You know, there is a limit, you know, electrolyzed copper, uh, you're going to be putting it down at, uh, you know, a micron. In Asia, where they're building component substrates, IC substrates, uh, when they get down below about a 10 micron line width, they have to go to a, you know, vacuum deposited copper just because it's, you know, less than a micron thick. Wow. So, okay. And, uh, so for, so let's talk about the, um, the, the first one you mentioned of the, the um, uh, ultra uh, HDI, yeah. um, that that's a combination of microvia and then the very fine lines. Is that what yeah. HDI basically is? Yeah, it's a primarily a buildup technology like HDI using microvias. But you know, our typical HDI boards went down to you know three mil line in space, two and a half mil line in space. And what we're talking about with ultra HDI is is lines and spaces that are below fifty microns. So you know, 50 microns and below. And there's a subcategory of that now called substrate-like PCBs, SLPs. Wow. Um, and they have line widths and spaces below 30 microns. And it's called sub substrate-like because these line widths and spaces and via sizes are similar to what has been used in the IC substrate um, industry. So the, you know, the packaging substrates for ball grid array components. Wow. Do you find many fab shops can do this um, ultra fine line, the 30 micron line in space? Or well, is it just it, bleeding edge? It started in Asia. So your cell phone, whether you got a Samsung or an Apple, you know, your, if you got an Apple watch, your buds, um, all that's got, you know, substrate like PCBs in it now. Wow. So okay. In so it's Asia, in, in Asia, it's high volume. It's volume production. And we probably have one in our pocket right now. Yeah, exactly. Wow. How do you make the vias in that? Is it laser etched or plasma or it's something? Like, yeah, it's laser, laser drilled. They're typically uh, 50 micron to 75 micron uh, diameters, uh, fairly thin dielectrics. Um, so, yeah, and it's coming. You know, in the U.S., we're just starting to, you know, implement that technology of Veritech, you know, and, and uh, um, additive circuit technologies and others and the thin 
oil laminators, um, you know, are, are helping establish our capabilities here. So uh, oh. we're working on it. So on the other extreme, on conventional uh, printer circuit board technology with just um, uh, the uh, subtractive and, and drilled holes, is that is there anything new going on there, or is we kind of saturated? That's a very mature technology, and and uh, we're going to migrate toward the ultra fine line. Yeah, I mean, I think the big wave in the past has been the HDI, you know, implementing uh, build-up layers, microvia technology, and then the, the materials. So you know, we've got just a, a a huge number of materials out there now for you know high-speed RF. Um, so I think. You know, when you look at the materials that were available 20 years ago, you know, you typically dealt with maybe one or two high speed mm-hmm. material polyamide and the FR4. And now you've got, you know, so many flavors of different materials out there to use. So I think that, you know, the material side of things is, is developed and advanced quite a bit recently. So on that note, so with that wide variety of materials available, you know, I keep hearing over and over again, in fact, we had... Um, uh, oh, I think it was Al Neves on uh, uh, one of the previous uh, podcasts, and he said that one of the most important recommendations he has to um, the guys that are designing, uh, he called it extreme signal integrity, where everything, you know, Dave Dunham at Molox uses that phrase, at 20 gigabits, everything matters. If you're dealing with the, the, the really high-end stuff, Al said the most important thing is to have a good relationship between the, the designer and the fab company. Um, do you do you find that as well? Would you concur? Yeah, and actually, that's what we're promoting with Ultra HDI. And because these line widths and spaces are getting so small, we're we're going into the area that you know used to be ICs. ICs used to have twenty micron lines and spaces. Yeah. yeah. Ten micron lines and spaces. IC substrates had that. Now circuit boards are getting down in that same realm. Well, a, an IC foundry works just the opposite from a design standpoint as circuit board fab, you know, designers. Circuit board designers design something, throw it over to the fabricator and say, hey, build this. You know, typically there's a few yeah. standards, but generally we're being asked to do all kinds of crazy stuff and combining things. On the IC fab side, you know, they've got a design criteria for each foundry and they give that to the designer. And it's like, you have to use our standards or we don't build period. And I think we're moving more towards that where we have to have more cooperation between the designer and the fabricator um, so that you build something that's, you know, you know, co-designed. It's not really co-designed, but a more cooperation between, you know, the, the designer and the fabricator. For, um, uh, Mark, did you have a comment about that? Yeah, I was just going to add something too. Um, it, it gets even crazier, Eric, because what Herb is promoting, you don't have to do on every layer. You don't have to have ultra HDI on every layer. You can have, you know, traditional subtractive um, fabrication on some layers, uh, the HDI on some, ultra HDI on others. Um, Engineers really have to get out there and learn what's going on inside their fabrication house so that they can make the best financial decisions, uh, you know, going forward. So so do you guys actually promote? I mean, if you have customers who give you a lot of designs, do you tell them, hey, come for a visit or or come talk to our process engineers to understand what the process capabilities you have and how to optimize their designs or adjust their their um, uh, uh, design constraints? 
absolutely come out anytime. Um, and if you can't, if you don't want to make the flight or drive or whatever, you know, we'll do it virtually, but get into the shop, get into the shop, get into the shop. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, this is a message I'm hearing over and over again, um, that, uh, to really get the most out of your board designs, if, if you're pushing the edge a little bit, um, tight connection with your fab shop sounds really important. Yeah. There's, when you get into the ultra HDI world, the, manufacturers are going to set up a process and it's going to be well-defined, well-controlled and much more limited. And so you really have to um, work with your fabricator to understand, you know, what their process does, what it's set up to do, and then design around that. Uh, Does that mean that once you work with a fab shop, you're kind of locked into that fab shop because of their process? Or is this something that, you know, many fab shops are using similar, similar enough design features so that you don't have to change your design based on the the fab you go to? I think there's going to be some commonality depending on the, the process that they use, whether they use modified semi-additive or semi-additive. Um, you know, there'll be different capabilities for those two. Um, you need to understand, you know, what process your fabricator is, is using. Um, fabricators that are using modified semi-additive process, they're going to be able to do a range of products that can't be done in subtractive. But depending on their equipment platform, you know, one may have a uh, imaging equipment that can do a, you know, 20 micron line in space and the other one is only 30. And so, you know, you, you need to understand their process, their capabilities and kind of work around that. But they'll be in a range, you know, depending on their their platforms. So clearly for the, the really fine line, the HDI and ultra HDI technology, you got to have a tight cooperation. What about just yeah. for high-end boards using conventional manufacturing technology, but in selecting from this wide range of materials that you have available. Um, how, how, is, are you guys, the, the, is the fab guy the company that decides which materials to use in the stack up or is that the design side of it? How do you make those, those trade-off decisions? Well, I think the designer is gonna use that depending on you know, the signal integrity requirements they have and the electrical performance. But it's a good idea to talk to the fabricator along with that, especially when you're mixing materials to make sure the materials are compatible or where you are putting them in the structure is the mo most appropriate place depending on the, the process. You know, some I've seen designers design things with a, for instance, Teflon material in a place in a stack up where, you know, they don't make the prepreg. <laughs> they've defined you know teflon in there you know and, and unless you want to do a fusion bonding um you know that isn't going to happen and it's going to limit your your uh, supply base i guess you know on that kind of thing so you really need to understand what materials are available how to implement them properly in the stack ups so it's a good idea to talk to the the, the fabricator on that mark you have some comments about that yeah, I was going to add to that too. So the fabricators are tied into material suppliers with minimum order quantities. You know, um, if you decide you want to go out and you want to get some, you know, whatever exotic material, you know, the fabricator might have to buy $100,000 worth of material to make that happen. Um, they're not just going to sit on that material. They're more than like, if it's something rare, they're just going to pass that right, that cost right on to you. You don't want to do that. You want to use stuff that they can easily get a hold of. Um, as far as generating a stack up, you don't have to go it alone um, by any means. Uh, I know we provide free stack up services and I'm sure other uh, other fabricators do too, but you just say, hey, listen, I've, I'm gonna need six layers. 
I'm going to need, you know, two impedance control traces and, you know, here's the impedances. Let me know what you can do. And then you take the advantage of our stack up engineers, you know, one of who's been doing this for 30, 35 years, um, you know, and she just sits there and, you know, calculates everything for you and says, okay, we're going to need, you know, this prepreg, this, uh, this core material, this thickness of copper, this is what you plug into your program. And we're going to be able to duplicate that. The other thing that I, I like doing about it that way versus, you know, using some online calculator, um, the calculators aren't perfect. They're not exact. You know, they're using ideal situations. But when Herb goes down into the factory, you know, he, he squeezes to get together a book and, you know, things happen. It's going to depend on your, and he can speak to this better than I can, but it's going to depend on your copper weight. It's going to depend on your uh, epoxy um, fraction. A lot of things are going to end up affecting how that stack actually goes together um, versus how it theoretically goes together. Um, so talk to your fabricator. Go visit your fabricator. Talk to him. Visit him. Talk to him. Visit him. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're, you know, the, you, you're kind of recommending a best practice of you know, if you're the designer, you think about what the engineering requirements or the performance requirements of what you want in your board. But then the the next thing you do is you contact the fab vendor and you work with the fab vendor to identify, given these performance requirements, what makes sense for the specific layers, prepreg and cores, uh, in order to take advantage of the materials you have in stock, the materials that are cost effective, that'll meet that performance. And you're saying it's really a a dialogue or, you know, kind of, I think Herb used that term, almost co-design of the stack up um, to match the performance, the designer wants and the, the material availability and compatibility that the, the fab guy wants. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, people ask me, you know, well, what's the best, you know, stack up calculator out there on the internet? Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. And I don't even care. You know, I, I just email Teresa, you know, it's just, <laughs> and let her figure it out. And it's not because I'm an employee. Um, we do that for all engineers, even if they don't end up going, well, it wouldn't really make sense if they didn't go with us to, because, you know, you might get different materials, but it, it's something we do pre-quote. You know, you don't have to have any skin in the game to get that done. So why not let somebody who that's what they do all day, every day for 30 years, figure it out versus me trying to, you know? Well, okay. So I, I guess one of the most important takeaways that I've gotten here is how important it is to, for the designer to work with the fab, uh, fab shop as early in the design cycle as possible to, to establish what that stack is going to be. Good, yeah. good tip. Okay. Well, before we quit, I wanted to circle back to something, Mark, that you mentioned. You have uh, teachmepcb.com. So tell me a little about what exactly is that organization? Sure. So Teach Me PCB is uh, another separate entity that is fully sponsored by Royal Circuit Solutions uh, Advanced Assembly Companies. We've also had other sponsors that help out with other things. DigiKey, Altium, um, Keysight jumped in for, for one of them. But our job is to teach the basics of printed circuit board design through projects. Um, the first time we did this, we created a little badge, you know, a little LCD display you might wear around a conference center. Uh, the last time we did it, because all of those parts are now out of stock, uh, we created macro keypads. So we taught people how to make little, little miniature keyboards. Um, it's completely free, uh, these, or these introductory courses. We're going to try to run them twice a year. Uh, and at the end of the, end of the day, you're going to have a functioning circuit board that you designed. We give you the schematic, uh, and we give you all the support you're going to need. Um, 
and I try to do a good mix of theory, physics, and practical advice. Now, that's what it was. What we're also <laughs> going to start adding, um, I, I've got some, some engineers that are going to join me for some paid courses. Now, they're not going to cost much. They're going to be a little bit shorter. Um, but the idea is, and again, thanks to the way that we have this set up, any money that comes from students goes directly 100% to the instructor. Uh, nobody's taking a cut. So Royal will keep sponsoring the running of the Teach Me PCD website so that we can make that happen. So um, if you know anybody out there who, who is looking to get into the educational space, I'm more than happy to you know, put my 15 years of, of teaching to use to help them prepare their course. And uh, they're gonna keep all the money they make. Wow, very good. And so for the, the, uh, the engineers that are looking to gain experience at PCB design, um, the workshops that you run, are you going to continue a series that is the, the free version to get started? And then you'll have other more advanced ones that are for, for a small fee? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So we, we found, and I'm sure you, you see this too, uh, at universities across the nation, engineers can graduate with a Bachelor of Science degree having never designed a print circuit board. So they have no idea how to get started. They don't know the difference between cap and foil construction. They don't know, you know, wire boards typically 1.6 millimeters. They, they've got no idea on any of this. What's a footprint? You know, there's, why would they know if they're not designing boards? So we're teaching all of that. That is now and will remain always free, 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 free. Wow. Um, what, the, what a great service. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say the, the ones that you're going to be paying for are going to be much more targeted information, like perhaps how to design, um, uh, let's call it F-type antenna using Altium Designer, something very, very specific, something very, very short, that sort of thing. And the reason that we have to charge for that at all is I, the instructors that I've gotten on board already, I can't get that quality of instructor for free and I can't afford to pay them. Um, so this is the, this is the workaround. So, and, and where, again, if someone wants to get started doing one of these, um, uh, PCB workshops, where do they go? Uh, teachmepcb.com. Okay. That's great. Well, unfortunately we're out of time here. Uh, this concludes today's episode. I want to thank, uh, Mark and Herb for the wonderful insights that we've gained here today and sharing your experiences. And to our listeners, please check out the Signal Integrity Journal Fundamentals podcast and all the future episodes online at podcasts.signalintegritygournal.com. Everybody, thanks for listening. Hope to see you at our next podcast.